This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, Weekend Warriors of Michigan Politics and Government. Last week, the Michigan Senate certified the initiative petition known as Unlock Michigan. It expunges the 1945 so-called Riot Act that Governor Gretchen Whitmer used last year to give herself authority to issue arbitrary executive orders locking down Michigan in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. This week, the State House of Representatives did the same thing. So now the 1945 statute will be wiped off the books. How many more GOP-fueled petition drives will we see and on what issues? Well, language has already been approved for a second initiative petition drive aimed at eliminating language in the public health code that Whitmer resorted to last fall after the state Supreme Court ruled that the governor's use of the Riot Act was unconstitutional. Unlock Michigan collected a record number of petition signatures in a record brief time. Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson and Democratic members of the State Board of State Canvassers did their best to slow walk the petition's path to ratification. The past week's action came after a record interminable nine and a half months had elapsed since Unlock Michigan filed the signatures with the Secretary of State last fall. Finally, even the Democratic-controlled state Supreme Court acknowledged the absurdity of the Democrats' resistance and ordered the canvassers to approve the petition immediately and send it to the legislature, which they did. And, by the way, Governor Gretchen Whitmer cannot veto this. That's what an initiative petition is all about. Now, on this second petition drive, will it be harder for Unlock Michigan to collect the signatures they need? Well, maybe a little, with Whitmer's powers somewhat constrained and COVID-19 receding as a public health menace. But any Democratic obstruction will be more difficult for the public to stomach this time, despite efforts by media-trained SEALs to discredit Unlock Michigan at every turn. Yes, we can expect at least a few of the Republican lawmakers' 39 bills to pass and be sent to Whitmer. This is separate from the second petition drive. But Whitmer will surely veto all these bills that get to her desk. No matter, says Unlock Michigan. Expect at least one more petition drive to install in statute the core of the Republicans' 39-bill election law reform package, including voter ID and, in Senate Bill 310, prohibiting the Secretary of State and or clerks from mailing unsolicited absentee ballot applications to voters. The latter is what Benson did last year without statutory authority, although it withstood at least one legal challenge. So that is why 
Benson and her move to send the unsolicited ballots last year was the single biggest factor in producing Joe Biden's and U.S. Senator Gary Peters' narrow Michigan wins in the 2020 general election because it vastly expanded the electorate, which almost always favors Democrats. Now, in other business this week that we could take a look at, the Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission, approved by Michigan voters in a statewide vote in 2018, appears to be in a lot of trouble. And the group that created it, Voters Not Politicians, or VNP, as its acronym is known, seems to be lying low. A Michigan Information and Research Service podcast opines that the commission is, quote, spinning its wheels, unquote, and is a, quote, train wreck waiting to happen, unquote. Is it really that bad? Well, my answer is it well could be. This summons up the adage, be careful what you wish for, because VNP's idealistic hopes and its poorly drafted ballot proposal have produced a commission that appears not ready for prime time. Members of the 13-member body, each of whom is paid somewhere in the neighborhood of $50,000 per annum, has spent some of its meetings discussing colors and twice in the past couple of weeks has lost the quorum it needs to do business. Not that the business would turn out to be meaningful. A similar new panel in Colorado has already produced preliminary maps using 2020 census data released so far and allowed the public to start commenting on them. By contrast, Michigan's commission claims it cannot do anything until the final census figures are published on September 30th. And so they asked the state Supreme Court for an extension of their constitutionally mandated deadline of November 1st for producing final Michigan maps. But the high court rebuffed the request. So, the commission is supposed to have 45 days of public comments starting September 17th, but will it produce anything that could be the subject of public comment by that time? This is what might have been expected from a group of rank amateurs guided by an inept Secretary of State bureaucracy. But when critics tried to point this out in 2018, they were barked down by the clapping seals in the news media, deathly afraid that the GOP might be able to draw maps for the third straight redistricting cycle. Media-trained SEALs were unconcerned that the top criterion for the group's work would be to incorporate, quote, communities of interest, unquote, into the final work product. If everything goes as wrong as now seems likely, it will be another blot on Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson's escutcheon. A longtime cheerleader for the commission and its work, Benson will have to do some splaining, as Ricky Ricardo used to say in the I Love Lucy TV show, along with her apologies for the performance of her motor vehicle branch offices. 
Jocelyn Benson may be in some trouble. Thirdly, I'd like to point to two special elections that are being held in state Senate districts, 8 and 28, to fill vacancies created by the resignations last year of the two Pete's. Peter Lucido, because he was elected Macomb County Prosecuting Attorney, and Peter McGregor, elected Kent County Treasurer. The primary is August 3rd and the general election November 2nd in what are considered solid Republican districts. Why should we care about these races and who will win? Well, first, let me say that Governor Gretchen Whitmer delayed these elections as long as she legally could to keep the Republicans' edge in the Senate so far this year to only 2016, as opposed to the 2216 margin they had before last year's election. Yet there were no complaints from the GOP, who've managed to shepherd their agenda through the chamber, even with a diminished majority. So you contrast the Republicans' reaction to the loud complaints from Michigan Democrats amplified by the media's clapping seals when then Governor Rick Snyder did the same thing with his schedule for filling the vacancy created in the 13th Congressional District upon the resignation of U.S. Representative John Conyers of Detroit back on December 5th, 2017. That vacancy went unfilled for roughly the same amount of time, 11 months. I wish I could talk about this more, but we're out of time on this segment. But watch those two races in the 8th and 28th Senate districts. Stay tuned. I'll be back in a minute with a guest. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back. And we're going to have with us on the line Representative Bronna Colley. And she is in her third and last term representing the 57th House District, which I believe includes all of Lenaway County except one township. Is that correct, Representative Colley? That is correct, Bill. Yes, we're right on the border, not far from Toledo, our neighbors in the south. There you go. Well, you were back in session with your state house of representative colleagues for only one day this week on wednesday but you had a lot of business uh for one thing you took up the initiative petition that unlock michigan had sent to the legislature and that was ratified by the senate last week tell us what that's all about sure and i could not have been more pleased to support that initiative Um, at its core it restores the balance of powers in the state of michigan And it's interesting, right, because the COVID-19 pandemic has been so politicized, and that's hurting everyone. But this Citizens Initiative really, if you look deeply, isn't a debate on Whitmer's executive orders related to the pandemic. And it isn't even about COVID-19 at all. It's about whether a governor, any governor, can not only declare a state of emergency, but also, and here was the problem, carry it on indefinitely without an end in sight, and basically render the legislature, and with that, that means the voice of the people themselves, completely meaningless as long as he or she would decide to continue with this. Um, That's what it was about. It restores the voice of the people, and uh, especially in a time of emergency, the governor and the legislature should always work together. 
Um, did any Democrats support this at all? There were some that did. Yes, there was. And I respect that greatly that they looked beyond politics and went to what the core of our system of government is all about, which has checks and balances for good reason. And uh, they're meant to be co-equal with no one branch or individual wielding unfettered power forever and ever. And this is important. Um, what's interesting, too, I've, I've seen some of the news following this and a lot of Confusion has ensued because of the political rhetoric surrounding it. This does not take away the ability of a governor to take quick action in emergency, whether it's a natural disaster or a pandemic, because we still have the 1976 Emergency Powers Act. So that under that act, a governor can take quick action for 28 days and at that point continue to operate if needed under a state of emergency with the legislature. You know, Bottom line, when the legislature is not involved in some way, the people of Michigan are silenced. And uh, this is about our system of representative government. Absolutely. Well, I think House Republicans also took action to override, try to override, uh, the governor's veto of a $155 million reading grant program that was to be administered by Grand Valley State University but unfortunately, your effort failed. Uh, the program would have allowed, I think, $1,000 in scholarships to be sent to parents that they could use to put their kids in reading programs. But the Michigan Education Association and others described the scheme as a voucher program, and that was probably enough <laughs> for <laughs> Governor Whitmer to veto it. Uh, what do you think? What's your reaction to all this? Well, I was extremely disappointed. To me, it, it's despicable, uh, it's disgraceful, it's disheartening to drag our kids into a political fray after, after all they have already been through over this past year. And it's interesting that when this bill passed in the House originally, Republicans and Democrats were standing together to stand up for our kids. And they really did put politics aside because all children matter. We're talking about reading here, so it should be a no-brainer. <laughs> Everyone knows that reading is foundational to future success in life. Um, it's not a secret for anyone, or it shouldn't be, that when a student can't read, the odds increase dramatically that they will drop out of high school or that they'll have substance abuse issues and that they'll end up incarcerated. So to me, why would we not support programs that help kids learn to read? providing options, especially the ones who are behind. And it's often not through any fault of their own. That was very disappointing. Representative Colley, as you know, it takes a two-thirds majority to override a veto. And the Republicans have a majority in the House, but they don't have a two-thirds majority. So they needed the same Democrats who supported this bill in the first place to right. support it again. And you would have overridden the veto. But they turned around and supported the governor's veto. How did they justify that? Were there any speeches on the floor? I mean, how can you countenance uh, or explain or apologize uh, for flip-flopping like this on an issue like this? You're asking a million-dollar question because those scholarships were approved originally with nearly unanimous support in the State House and in the Senate, by the way. Uh, but yet the vote to overturn that veto to help 
help these struggling kids recover from all of the learning loss that happened last year I was was a tie split vote. It was 54 to 54. And I don't know how you you move forward with that. As I said, it's a shame that we have political games in action that are leaving our kids behind because they deserve a fighting chance. They're the victims at the end of all of this. Yeah, well, um, apparently the Democrats in the House are more loyal to their governor than they are to the principal behind the $155 million reading grant program. But uh, we could talk about this forever. But there was another issue looming, and that was uh, unemployment compensation, whether we should put a stop to it to try to get workers that have been laid off taking unemployment to return to work. Because a lot of small business employers are saying, you know what, Uh, As long as these workers are getting more uh, from unemployment compensation than they are from working, they won't work. And we're just artificially propping them up. And meanwhile, we have jobs begging uh, that we can't fill. We want to, and we want to get our businesses running, firing on all cylinders, and we can't do it. So there was an attempt to try to end that, and I think the governor exercised another veto. And what's going on there? Can anything happen that will change the situation? Well, you summed that up so well. You know, Governor Whitmer says that Michigan is fully reopening, and I'm so glad about that, safely and sensibly, of course. But we cannot expect any kind of healthy return to normalcy without workers returning to their jobs. And You've probably heard many, I know I sure have, of businesses that are not able to open. They're not able to open at full capacity. They can't open for their full hours because there is a labor shortage. Just last week, one of my favorite restaurants announced they'll be closed for July and probably all of August due to nothing but a labor shortage. This morning, I had a call from a local coffee shop owner. We're... We're wrapping up to talk about that. It's time to get people back to work. They can't compete with the unemployment wages. Well, Representative Bronna Colley, Republican of Adrian, you've done a great job of explaining three very important issues that were in play this week. Bronna Colley represents the 57th House District in Lenawee County. She's in her final term. But maybe she's looking at running for the Senate if a new district is created. Uh, after the census figures are released and the commission releases its map. Thank you, Representative Bronna Colley. Thank you, Bill. We'll be back in a minute with another guest. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we are very fortunate to have on the line with us our old friend, John Cuvion. He is the CEO of JMC Analytics and Polling in Louisiana. John Cuvion, thanks for being our guest. Always a pleasure. Well, John, um, I have talked to five other political scientists and analysts in five other states over the last couple of weeks who share the same thing that Louisiana and Michigan have, and that is a Democratic governor with a Republican-controlled legislature. The other states are Kansas, Wisconsin, uh, Kentucky, Pennsylvania, and North Carolina. 
And hmm. Louisiana, you've got John Bell Edwards, a Democrat, in his second term, and you've got a Republican-controlled legislature. How has that worked out? <laughs> Not very, but I think the crucial thing here to appreciate with the states that you had listed, the most important dynamic – well, really, there's two important dynamics. Number one, when you talk about Republicans, quote-unquote, controlling the legislature is control with more or less than two-thirds of the membership because, of course, of veto override considerations. The other thing which is important to consider, which does set Louisiana kind of apart from the states you described, would be kind of how hardened are the partisan lines. In other words, we're not in Louisiana quite as you know, line in the sandish as other states or the U.S. Congress is, but still you do have kind of sparks that can fly from time to time. But the most important thing with all those two concepts I had described is that Louisiana has a tradition of a strong governorship, and the most powerful item the governor has in his hands, because we have a centralization of power at the state capitol, a lot of projects like roads and bridges and water towers and all that kind of and flood control and all that are pretty much decided at the state capital level in Baton Rouge. So the song and dance that goes on is legislators pass not just the bill for annual spending, but for capital outlay for those projects I just described. The governor has the ability to line item veto those projects here in Louisiana. So that one fact which manifests itself as the strong governor state we have, that does give the governor a fair amount of leverage, particularly since the Republican majorities in both chambers are not a secure two-thirds. Okay, uh, that is a great sum up of the situation down there. But let me ask you about COVID-19. How does that Mm -hmm. work in Louisiana? I mean, over the past year uh, in the Constitution and statutes of Louisiana, does the governor have kind of unilateral power to do what he wants without legislative input or not? Pretty much. And unlike Michigan, In Michigan, you've had kind of this continuous battle back and forth about nullifying the governor's powers, which, from my understanding, that did in fact happen a couple days ago with regards to Governor Whitner's trying to keep extending in repeated patterns of 28 days. In Louisiana, the governor pretty much has almost all the power. Several conservative legislators did try to find a way to nullify the emergency order. The problem is the wording of the law they cited wasn't clear, and it got tied up in litigation, and I kind of got the feeling no judge wanted to deal with the issue. So it was this uneasy tug of war going on over that issue, but right now – well, (laughs) of course, things are changing with the Delta variant, but right now the restrictions are off. The question then becomes, given our lagging vaccination rates, if some restrictions, particularly masking, get put back on because – We've had, oh gosh, a uh, tripling, quadrupling of our hospitalizations in just the last two weeks, and case counts are bad. And so there's going to be pressure for the governor to put more restrictions back on, which could spark some more disagreements. John Kubian, how about election law reform legislation? Have there been bills of that sort that the Republicans have advanced, and have they gotten to John Bell Edwards' desk, and what has he done with them? Have they tried to override? What's going on there? 
They've tried. He's vetoed them, and they couldn't override the veto. Wow. In other words, the big, big spark or, I guess, point of contention last year was back when the pandemic started, we were about to have a presidential primary. And not only did that get pushed back, but they made some temporary changes to increase access to mail-in voting. And the thing was, the governor drew a bright red line in the sand with regards to going back to the way things used to be, which is Louisiana having very restrictive rules as to who can mail and vote. So it's it's definitely a standoff, but I would say the governor has the upper hand right now in terms of there being more limited early voting allowed, and they've expanded in-person early voting some. Well, wasn't there a recent special session or at least some activity in the legislature that <laughs> yeah. you want to talk about? I would, because it's a perfect ex- exhibition of the Louisiana way, which is, you know, the strong governor, and you don't yet have secure enough Republican legislative majorities to overturn the governor's will. Cutting to the chase, you had 28 bills which the governor vetoed, two of which were kind of what triggered the special session, the veto session, which, by the way, had rarely been done before in Louisiana. But the two items that were really kind of front and center of this veto session, one had to do with concealed carry. The other had to do with the requirement of, you know, if you're a biological male trying to compete in women's sports, whether that would be permissible or not. Those two issues dominated the special session. The the five-second soundbite is the Republican attempt to override those gubernatorial vetoes failed because – you had several things happen which all were bad for Republicans. The first is – you. But remember how I mentioned we did not have a secure two-thirds right. Uh, majority? Right. So that meant that you had a couple of Republicans who flipped during the veto session, and you also had whatever, Demo- whatever Democrats had defected during the regular session – they returned back to supporting the governor because, of course, he has the power of the purse strings in terms of promising projects. You also had some unfortunate absences of those who had favored the Republican position. They had uh, they were undergoing cancer treatment or they were injured and didn't want to attend session. So point being was the vote count that was there before this veto session melted away and the governor got his way and they basically even though it was supposed the session was supposed to end tomorrow after two days the whole thing folded up and the legislators are back home again so it's testament to the fact that just because you have the legislators of one party and the governor of another party you can't make a blanket statement of whether the governor will always be overruled because of those special considerations like, you know, do you need two-thirds, three-fifths, or a half to override a governor? Are you Do you have hard or soft partisans on the Republican and Democrat side? All those intangibles come into play, and so I thought the special session was a good exhibition of why – Despite having just about two-thirds majorities in Louisiana, the Republicans still could not override the governor. When those two bills passed originally, are you saying they passed with more than a two-thirds majority when they were sent to uh, John Bell Edwards? And then the flip-flops on both sides and the absences resulted in failure to override the governor's veto, right? 
Correct. And to give you a perfect example on the women's sports bill, we have 105 state house members, 70 constitutes two thirds. Well, that bill passed with 78 votes in the regular session. And when the veto session came around, a couple of those 78 were absent. You had a handful more who were black Democrats who, because their preacher had been black Democrats from rural areas. Let me be more specific. Yeah. Their preacher had basically put pressure on them to oppose the governor, and the governor flipped them back. And things like that all added up to bring them from 78 down to 68 votes. So, like I said, it, politics can be complicated sometimes if you have a strong governor system like we do in Louisiana. Wow. Well, you've done a great job of explaining a situation down there. Every state uh, is slightly different, no question about it, even though the seven states that I mentioned earlier all have the same uh, configuration of a Democratic governor and a Republican-controlled legislature. Thank you, John Kuvion, chief cook and bottle washer for JMC Analytics and Polling in Louisiana for being our guest. Thank you. We will be back in a minute. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We are back, and we are really lucky to have a very interesting guest. She is former state representative Andrea LaFontaine. She represented uh, House District 32, which was part of St. Clair in Macomb County. She's a was a Republican, maybe still is, from Richmond. And uh, she is now kind of the executive director of the Michigan Trails and Greenways Alliance. But there's some other things about her who that are very interesting that we'll get into. But Representative Andrea LaFontaine, thanks for being our guest. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, let me ask you, uh, the Michigan Trails and Greenways Alliance, exactly what is it and what do you do? Sure. So I'm currently the executive director of Michigan Trails and Greenways Alliance. Um, I'll refer to it as MITGA, MTGA. We are a very small statewide nonprofit that works to connect um, communities and people to each other through trails. So we serve as like a resource hub. If a local community or some citizens are looking at building or developing trails in their community, they can come to us and we can help navigate them to planning resources, funding, um, maintenance on the back end. We're pretty much like the go-to for things trails throughout Michigan. Well, how many trails and greenways are there in Michigan? How much mileage? That is a fantastic question. There are, um, it depends, right? Because we have state sanctioned trails, which are owned and operated by the DNR. And then also communities have their trails. So we have, I would say, upwards of maybe, I think 500. I should know this number off the top of my head, but quite a few hundred miles within Michigan. Wow. Um, how do you get your funding? I mean, who pays you or are you paid on an ad hoc basis where somebody comes to you for help and you help them for a certain amount of money or how, how does that work? So we are a membership-based organization. We have um, individual members, which are non-motorized trail users. I do want to make that distinction. So non-motorized, think hiking, biking, walking, riding a horse, paddling, walking your dog, all of that. Um, So we have members that are part of our organization, as well as we do apply for grants with private foundations. Um, The Ralph Wilson Foundation in Southeast Michigan has been a pretty big supporter of ours lately. 
Um, but that's between that and private donations, that's how we're funded. We got we got to work hard for every penny that we bring in. Yeah, how many members do you have altogether? We just actually approach we 350. Wow, that's pretty impressive. So we've doubled. We've doubled within the last year, which is super exciting because there was um, we saw a dramatic need and use for trails during 2020. Right, people during lockdown looking to venture out into their neighborhood to get out. Um, and they went to parks and trails. So we welcomed all these new users and encouraged them to be MTGA members. Um, and yeah, so our membership has doubled and I'm hoping it'll continue that trend and we'll scoop up even more next year. How long has MTGA been in effect, in existence? So we have an interesting history in that we were started, we were like the Michigan Rails to Trails. Like people are very familiar with Rails to Trails. Um, we were the Michigan chapter of Rails to Trails in like 1986. Um, but then Rails to Trails regionalized their field offices in 2004, and they moved that hub for the Midwest to Ohio, which I'm sure you can imagine that didn't sit well with Michigan. So we were like, <laughs> you know what, we need to... We need to create our own organization because we've got a lot of great things happening here. So in 2004, Michigan Trails and Greenways Alliance was officially born. So how do people get to you if they want to talk to Andrea LaFontaine or hook up with uh, MGTA? So they go to michigantrails.org is our website. They can go there, learn more about us. Um, all of my contact information is out there. Email address is andrea at michigantrails.org. So whether they want to be a member, just support the org organization um or just learn more about trails give us a holler because that's what we're here for okay now secondly you have um another job uh, or you're going to have one starting i guess this fall you are the new chair of the robert p griffin and marjorie griffin uh politics and government chair uh program at Central Michigan University, your alma mater, where you got not only a bachelor's, but a master's degree, I believe. That's pretty exciting. Uh, what is that program? How long has it been in existence and what do you plan to do about it? So exciting, I think, is putting it mildly because I am just absolutely over the moon about this opportunity. Um, first and foremost, yes, I am a CMU grad. I'm a first-gen college graduate in my family, and um, I'm so, so, so excited to be able to return to campus and in this position. So um, this endowed chairmanship position through CMU is, um, sorry, just had a black their call. I think it's in. 20 years um, old, isn't it? Two decades old. Two decades old, started by um, Senator Bob Griffin, back in the day, U.S. Senator from Michigan, and Really, the, the role and responsibility of this position is to, I guess, like increase like political awareness and really boost exposure to, um, to government and democracy and really kind of help students find their way, but also encourage like critical thinking and let's dive into those issues, but also bring in real life practitioners, right, to come in and talk about the different positions that they're in, whether it be local government, state government, um, whatever branch of government they find themselves in, bringing that real-life expertise into the classroom to work with these, just to talk to these students, communicate with them, show them, show them what the landscape, what the political landscape is like here in Michigan. Doesn't it manifest itself in seminars? I mean, don't you have like a seminar you're going to teach every week? 
Yes. So, um, well, I will teach a class once a week. It'll be Monday night. Um, I believe it's 630 to 9:20, And then there is a Griffin forum that they'll have, which is kind of like um, you bring in a panel and you can, you can open it up. Uh, you pick the topics and guide the series. I remember when I was there, I believe we had the majority leader out of the Senate and the Speaker of the House came in. And there were a couple others. I want to say the minority leaders as well in both chambers came and sat there as a panel and really talked about current issues in Michigan and then opened it up for question and answer, which I'm sure you can relate. Question and answer is always like the best time if you're asking the questions, but if you have to answer them, it's probably the most nerve wracking. But it's just a, really a phenomenal opportunity for students to interface with that level in that element of government. Are you going to give them exams? Are they going to have tests? <laughs> Um, I feel like I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't. I will say, you know, my Griffin chair was pretty, pretty great. And I think there are a few things I recall from that class that I hope to replicate in mind. But I remember on the first day of class getting a sheet that asked me who my state rep was, who my state senator was. And just that first initial round of awareness of how many people may not actually know who their representation <laughs> is in the legislature is it's eye opening. And you know, it took that it took that first little pop quiz on that first day for me to understand um how important knowing that stuff really is. Yeah, absolutely. Do you come from a family where anybody has any political experience or background in the LaFontaine family? So yes, my mom is a township clerk in Richmond Township. Um and when I ran for office back in twenty ten, we first started with this idea of I thought I could convince my mom to run for this seat because <laughs> I needed campaign experience on my resume. So I was like, Mom, you should run and let me run your campaign just so I can put that on my resume. And then it turned around of, Well, actually your dad and I decided that you should do it. And never in a million years did we think we'd be successful, but um yeah, the rest is history at that point. Well, I remember that primary. I mean, you had a couple of male opponents who had pretty impressive credentials, but you just outworked them, didn't you? You went door to door. Oh, I worked my tail off. Yes, uh, I had three. There were three males in the primary. We won by 64 votes. That's a number that you never forget. 64 wow. votes. And then and then you had to go, I had to go up against an incumbent in the general election. And yeah, I, I was in the best shape of my life then. We just, I literally lived on coffee, protein bars, and I knocked doors. <laughs> all day long. Wow. And you knocked off an incumbent in November of 2010. Yeah, there was there was a pretty good wave that happened that year. And thankfully, I think I just kind of, I coasted on into that combined with some hard work. And yep, it happened. Well, when you got in the legislature, um, did you get into committee work that led you to where you are now with the Trails and Greenway Alliance? I mean, is this something that you would have thought when you entered the legislature you'd wind up doing when you got out of the legislature? No. I I honestly, it was very funny. So I grew up in northern Macomb County, um, tons of open space, parks, all of that great stuff around me. Um, I may have taken it for granted at one point, and I can tell you about that. Because when I moved to Oakland County, I realized I'm, I'm now dependent on these public places for my outdoor recreation needs. Um, but yeah, I started in the legislature. Um, after my first term, I was asked to chair the Committee on Natural Resources, which was always, it felt like um, it was something I was passionate about. But did I see myself as the chairwoman of that committee? I was excited that Speaker Boulder put me there. Um, but yeah, I think that that did. It led me to where I'm at today at Michigan Trails and Greenway Line. 
Wow, what an exciting roller coaster ride you've had starting in 2010, and actually before that, probably at CMU. Thank you so much, former Representative Andrea LaFontaine, uh, who is now the Executive Director of the Michigan Trails and Greenways Alliance, and she is the new chair of the Robert P. Griffin Program at Central Michigan University, a very prestigious post. Thank you, Andrea LaFontaine, for being our guest. Thank you, Bill. We'll be back next week with still more.